Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. My name is Michael Le Chevalier, Associate Director of the Institute. Um, and it's a real pleasure to be having you joining us here uh, this afternoon for our first uh, public event like this that'll be taking place um, in the middle of the day. Um, this allows for us to bring to you uh, not just great scholars from America, but also scholars from all over the world. Um, I am excited to announce uh, an upcoming series uh, that we are launching, a new web lecture series taking place every Tuesday uh, throughout the summer on reason and beauty in Renaissance Christian thought and culture. You can join us uh, next week for our first event, next Tuesday at 7 p.m., which will feature Jason Alexander in conversation with Ariel Cyber on Dante as poet and philosopher. Uh, more details on our website. Now, when COVID-19 first began to impact our country, two events were immediately proposed by our team. Our past event on apocalypticism in times of crisis, featuring Bernard McGinn and Wilhelmine Otten, and this event on Christians in times of catastrophe, Augustine's City of God. Um, these seminars have been intended to help us to, to dig into um, the history of Christian wisdom and Christian thought, and to bring those to bear on our present moment. Uh, it's a special treat to host this event as both Russell Hittinger and Father Sherwin have helped teach our summer seminar for doctoral students on Augustine's City of God in past summers. This and all of our summer seminars are designed to improve the capacity of future professors to teach courses and engage in research in central texts of the Christian intellectual tradition. Now, if you'd like to donate to help support our work putting on these uh, web events that we're hosting, as well as to support our summer seminar programs for doctoral students, you can visit our website at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. Um, now, uh, I'd also like to thank our co-sponsors who have helped extend the reach of our programs um, by promoting it through their uh, websites, um, through emails, and through social media. Uh, and in particular, I want to thank America Media, who is co-sponsoring today's event, as well as all the other Catholic centers and institutes um, who are supporting this event today. Now, recent crises related to the death of George Floyd and the long history of racism in America have eclipsed, uh, in some respects, the crisis that our current our recent events have been organized around, including this one. Um, but we do have plans for future events to address racism, justice, and Catholicism. So I'd invite you to continue to stay tuned to our website and check out emails for future information on that. Um, now, before I introduce our speakers, I do want to call your mind to the fact that we will have a question and answer portion from the audience at the um, end of our moderated conversation. But at any time during the event, if you have a question, you can just pose it using the Q&A button um, at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. If you are joining us through YouTube, you can also send an email to admin at lumenchristi.org um, if you have a question, and I'll be sure that that gets to our moderator today. Uh, it's exciting to welcome back three people who have been very involved with the work of Lumen Christi. Jennifer Frey, who is moderating today's conversation, is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina. It's a, pre it's a pleasure to welcome her back as she was previously a Collegiate Assistant Professor of Humanities at the University of Chicago, where she was a member of the Society of Fellows in the Liberal Arts 
and an affiliated faculty in the philosophy department. At that time, she also worked at Lumen Christi as my predecessor, as an assistant director here. And Jen is also a public intellectual running a podcast entitled Sacred and Profane Love, who are co-sponsors of, of today's event. Russell Hittinger is senior fellow at the Lumen Christi Institute, visiting fellow in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and professor emeritus of Catholic studies and law at the University of Tulsa. He is also ordinarius of the Pontifical Academy of the Social Sciences and the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Professor Hittinger is the author of many books, including A Critique of the New Natural Law Theory, The First Grace, Rediscovering Natural Law in a Post-Christian Age, Thomas Aquinas and the Rule of Law, and forthcoming Paper Wars, Catholic Social Doctrine and the Modern State. And Father Michael Sherwin is Professor of Fundamental Moral Theology at the University of Freiburg, Switzerland. He has also taught at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, where he received his initial formation as a Dominican and was ordained a priest in 1991. Father Sherwin is director of the St. Thomas Aquinas Institute for Theology and Culture and of the Pinker's Archives. Author of articles on the psychology of love, virtue ethics, and moral development, his monograph, By Knowledge and by Love, Charity and Knowledge in Moral Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, has recently been reissued in paperback. Now I'll hand it over to our speakers, um, but particularly Jen Frey, and thank you once again for joining us for this great event. Hey, thank you so much, Michael. Um, thanks to Lumen Christie for hosting this uh, and for giving me an excuse to revisit Augustine City of God, um, which was both spiritually beneficial and very daunting. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and just ask a really basic question, and that is about the city. That is about the city of God as a text. So, Russ, this is a question for you. Um, why did Saint Augustine write this book? Who did he take his audience to be, and how long did it take him to write it? Okay, good. Hi, Jen. Hi, Father Michael. Hi, and Michael. Uh, well, it begins with an event. Uh, the subtitle of the City of God is Against the Pagans. And he had written against a lot of people before 410. But he, he had never written a treatise against the pagans. He, he usually kept in view fellow Christians or Manichaeans. Uh, well, the event happened in August of uh, 410 AD, what, 1610 years ago from us. Uh, in which Rome, a city of about 800,000 people, was pretty thoroughly sacked by Aryan Goths for three days, uh, led by their king, Alaric, uh, who was a former friend and ally of the emperor Theodosius, had actually served in a, a supporting unit of the Roman army. So he was both a Christian and a former Roman soldier. And he was seeking uh, imperial recognition of his service and a place to settle his people within the interior bounds of the empire. And to get the attention of the imperial authorities, he circled Rome in 408 and just did a lockdown of the city until people got diseases and starved to death. And he didn't get anywhere with the lockdown 
So in 410, he just invaded the city. And it was a pretty thorough sacking. I would say he did a good job of himself, uh, especially in the vicinity of the Vatican, the neighborhood of the Vatican, stole precious artifacts, uh, burned down buildings and so on and so forth, but skedaddled in about three days. Uh, this was not the first or the last sack of the city of Rome. Uh, the first sack, which was much more severe, happened in 390 BC. Uh, a group of Gauls came down and took every bit of the city of Rome except for the very top of the Capitoline Hill. But if you go to Italy today and you hear an Italian speaking of the Sacco di Roma, they always have in mind the most thorough sack of Rome, which was 1527 and done by uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. So Rome has been sacked uh, many times. Those are the three main ones. Uh, Rome was not even the capital in 410. So the main capital of the empire since the 320s was Constantinople. Mm -hmm. And on the Western part of the empire, it was Milan and then Ravenna. So in 410, Rome was not even a regional capital of the empire. But there was a hue and cry about, about this calamity. Uh, Jerome said, when Rome goes down, the whole world goes down. When, when, when Rome dies, all of the Romans die. You know, Augustine had none of that, actually. Uh, he actually treated the sack uh, somewhat objectively and from a distance. He certainly did not treat it apocalyptically. But there was one thing that he couldn't ignore. And what finally got him into the business of beginning to write um, a rather long work on this subject. Um, when he was born in Roman North Africa, 354, um, Rome was already 1,100 years old. And when the sack happened, uh, well, and when he was born, Rome had been a de facto empire for 500 years. And you can't ignore the moral center of an empire when it gets sacked. Empires are not like Greek city-states, you know, successful Greek city-states, or like successful trading peoples who become colonists. Romans were not colonists, they were conquerors. And the amazing thing is that they had an empire that stretched from Hadrian's Wall to the west, all the way to the Tigris River to the east, about 3,000 miles. And this had to be explained. The rise and the demise or the near demise of an empire had to be explained in terms of divine providence. Um, and he begins book one, the preface and book one of the city of God Billy, basically with two promises. Two promises have to be explained. Let me let me ask you to hold off really quickly on that because before we, and I do want to get, and I do want you in particular to explain sort of like where he starts with the city of God and the entire structure of the book. But before we get there, I do want uh, Father Michael to tell us something about who St. Augustine was. Um, 
And in particular, I would invite you to say something about uh, the fact that he was an African. So he was born in, in what's present day Algeria um, and that he was a bishop in Africa. Yeah, well, uh, to back up, I think the, the question as to why he wrote the book is complicated because in some ways the book he the the first part of the book he wrote had uh, responded to one issue, and then the larger book he ended up completing, you could maybe argue that it was written for a different reason. He may have had that reason from the very beginning, uh, but we'll come back to that. So, like, okay, so he's born in three fifty four. He's one of the few ancients that we actually know his birthday because he wrote a dialogue that is set uh, in his birthday, so the 13th of November. Uh, he um, grew up, yes, in what was the breadbasket or the grain basket of the Roman Empire. Uh, so it's a Roman outpost, and like many outpost cultures, the local aristocracy very much wanted to prove their Romanness. So the educational system, he received a very, very good classical education because they wanted to make sure that uh, Roman citizens from the center of the empire recognized them to be Romans and treated them with respect since so much of Rome depended upon their grain. So it's, uh, it has all the complexities of, uh, of that type of being a citizen, but not being at the center of the culture. Uh, it's a culture that's united by shipping and uh, he, uh, one of the reasons I think you can come back to why he wrote the book is one of the obsessions of his life is that the things he loves uh, keep, uh, he, he's a, a sensate person, this being trained to be a rhetor. And he, he tells us that he was able in his personality, he can be distracted from what he wanted to be doing by simply seeing a, a fly caught in a spider web or watching a, a hunt go by. Uh, so he's constantly falling in love with things that fail him. And this plagues him throughout his life. He has a Christian mother who's worried about his salvation. He has a, a pagan father. He goes off after he receives his formation. He's trying to make it in the big city. He doesn't particularly have a good experience in Rome. I think that's one of the reasons why he has an uh, ambivalent attitude towards the sacking of Rome. Uh, he's not like Jerome who had his initial uh, successes in life in Rome, for whom Rome has a lot of happy memories. I don't think Augustine had a lot of happy memories as a young scholar in Rome. Uh, and again, it's famously, he becomes a Christian uh, in spite of himself. Uh, he's following after lots of different philosophical movements, trying to figure out uh, himself and his own desires and why he's unhappy. Uh, the confessions kind of give a portrait of that, his own take on it. Uh, the famous conversion uh, outside of Milan, where he uh, is uh, wanting to be freed from his slavery to his passions, but uh, can't yet bring himself to believe. And uh, he hears a little kid on the other side of the wall saying, take and read, take and read. And he opens up St. Paul. So there's, it's a long, it's interesting, when he was first converted, he thought that being a Christian was just to be a kind of a Christian version of the philosophical life of the pagans, that you would uh, withdraw from the world and that this, the, the philosophical ascent 
uh, of uh, the Neoplatonists' purification of your life there. And it was only later when he's called upon to the call to the priesthood and then to be a bishop where he starts an intense study of the scriptures where he begins to really see the tension between the gospel message and the culture of the world and i think that why did he write the book because this had been in this question of the christian's relationship to the saculum was had been in a lifelong obsession uh, he was 57 when rome was sacked and these questions had been brewing in him. Uh, the image of the two cities was already being developed by him because of his fights with the Donatists. Uh, so that idea was already circulating before the siege of, of Rome. Uh, and then uh, the siege, so, he, you know, so he's a regional bishop, well-respected. He's been in a, a, the pastoral ministry as a bishop for I think 20 years by this time. Uh, he's his main concern at the time was not the politics of the Italian peninsula, but settling the Donatist controversy. One of the reasons why he didn't start his response, other than his preaching, why he didn't respond to the sacking of Rome until maybe one or two years later, was because he was, he was taken, his, his intellectual energy was taken with trying to resolve the Donatist controversy and the meetings in, in Carthage uh, that he had to attend and write the minutes of and all the rest. So it's only after that passes that he responds to a growing chorus of why uh, did God let this happen? And the pagan argument that this is the result of the ascendancy of Christians. And the first three books are really a response to that. And they start circulating by 413. Uh, Those first three books are circulating. But when they don't receive a, a a pagan response, he's free to go back to his bigger question, which is the Christians, uh, the, the community, the, 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 the church's relationship to the world, and what should, how should we see our lives in the world? And that, I think, is what ends up being uh, the real theme of the book. At the time that he's writing this, I mean, so we think of St. Augustine now as this like towering figure in Christianity. Also, I think just in the history of letters generally as the author of the confessions. Um, but was he a towering figure as he's writing this? Like what's his status and how would the pagans have, have viewed him anyway? Well, those are great questions. I, um, he, had in, he had already invented several literary genres, the soliloquy, which didn't exist before him, and the confessions. So he was kind of seen by the pagans, from what I can tell from my reading and study, the pagans saw him as a curiosity. He was clearly well-educated, but he was doing things that didn't quite fit into their educational background, except for the city of God. The city of God is written for people of leisure in the way they would have loved. Uh, so there were pagans read this work and he's writing for he's writing for a world that doesn't really exist in the in the way in which he's portraying it because you know he doesn't he doesn't address mithra or any of the most popular religions of the day he's he's writing he's confronting the the pagan culture of the educated elite who are already a dying breed uh, but He's engaging them and they're reading him. 
So he was definitely known and he was being read. And he also had an idea. I think it's very beautiful where he, at the end, uh, so he writes the last book, book 22. He's now in his early 70s. We think probably 72 years old when he finally finishes book uh, 22. And at that time, he, uh, he talks about wanting to finish this book because he thinks, he, he's thinking about he might be helpful to future generations. <laughs> so he has a sense that uh, the future Christians may need this type of writing. And he took great care to preserve his library. And it's kind of miraculous that the library survived the events after his death. Right, excellent. <clears throat> okay, Russ, I'm, first of all, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I, I wanna get back to um, to what you were saying about the beginning of the city of God. Um, and look, I mean, you once said to me personally um, that the city of God is a is a monumental work and, and that seems right. It's also very daunting. So I wondered if you could just just for our audience, um, help to break it down a little bit. Like, what's its basic structure? Um, and you can fold that into your question, into your response about who's he writing it for and, and what's he trying to do in it. Um, so when the sack was fully reported around the empire, including North Africa, North Africa soon received many wealthy, refugees from Italy after the sack. And Augustine discovers pretty quickly he has two audiences already. He has an audience of Christians who are complaining that once the empire became Christian, that uh, all sorts of bad things happened. There was a very bad famine in 384. And now there's the sack of Rome, desecration of churches, the rape of consecrated virgins. So there were weak Christians who were grumbling that just when Christian times begin, bad things happen. His earliest sermons on the sack are aimed at uh, his flock and the refugees who, who began to float into that part of North Africa. So that's one group he has to deal with is to explain the event to Christians who thought that Jesus Christ would promise an even better empire than the one the Romans had. But his other audience were the cultured pagans as Father Michael was talking about. Remember he was, in the early 380s, he held a very important post in that still quasi-pagan uh, bureaucracy. He had the post of the master of municipal rhetoric of Milan. It was his job to develop rhetorically the speeches in praise of Roman glory and the glory of military exploits of Rome. So he knew the high style. And the culture pagans began making the obverse argument of the Christians saying, look, um, 380, Theodosian laws make a Christianity the official religion. 384, we get a famine. Uh, look, what's going on? And now we have the sack of Rome. Uh, clearly, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as you call him, is not doing his civic duty. Because what are gods for if not to protect the city, to make crops grow, 
to crown military exploits with victory, so on and so forth. So you had two sides on this who were in effect making the same argument. That is, uh, what good is God for unless he gives us temporal advantages? And I think he understood that was to be the main theme of the book at the very beginning. Because at the very beginning of the book, in the preface and at the beginning of book one, he cites the promise given to Rome by Jupiter via Virgil in the Aeneid. That is, Romans, I have set no bounds in space or time, but have given you an empire without end. So here's one promise. Why you have to pay attention to an empire when it gets wobbly. They were promised by their chief god, Jupiter, through Virgil, to have an empire without end. On the other hand, the promise of Christ is to enter the heavenly kingdom of eternal life. So which of these promises are going to govern our interpretation of the facts? That's how it begins. And he has both audiences in mind, uh, both the culture pagan and the Christian. And he doesn't think either of them have an adequate understanding of this event or an adequate understanding of what kind of God could promise what kind of thing. And did Christ really promise to his church uh, temporal advantages? The crops would grow, that the economy would grow, stock market would go up, uh, barbarians would never invade the pomerium of Rome. So that's the argument as it begins. Uh, whose promises should we be interpreting this event through? Do you think that- well, the first five books, the first five books are basically an argument that the promises of Jupiter were completely inefficacious. And in fact, a lie that Jupiter never said such things to begin with, Virgil did. But that uh, whatever success Rome had in becoming an empire over almost two millennia can't be due to the Roman gods. So the first five books is, is a critique of the Roman gods and whether they could have ever brought these temporal advantages to begin with. Second five books are a critique of the philosophers who knew that the Roman gods were inefficacious, but uh, were willing to tell a noble lie. That is an expedient lie uh, about the gods, uh, simply to keep peace and harmony in the city and to keep they themselves, the philosophers, from ending up like Socrates. Yes. End of the first part of the city of God. I, I, Russ, I think we should. I think we should let uh, readers know that the the outline that you're offering, Augustine helpfully gives us at the end of Book Ten. So the last paragraph of the end of Book Ten, he tells us what the first ten books are about. Oh yeah, go on. I interrupted. Uh, and then, after book 10, he tells the whole story from a different point of view in book 11. And it's from the point of view of divine scripture. So the first 10 books, the main evidence and the main voices are the pagan writers themselves. 
narrating their own history as they understand their own promises about empire and so on and so forth. But at book 11, he begins at Genesis in the pre-solar, pre-temporal creation of light and narrates the divine promise, the Christian divine promise, all the way through scripture to its up to the present time. So it's a very clever device to take an event, examine it through one kind of, let's say, empirical history, mostly based upon literary evidence, and to look at the same story from the standpoint of God speaking to us. You know, I think it's important to, to yeah. note something that it took me a while, it took a while for the affirmation to sink in, but Peter Brown, in his remarkable uh, Augustine of uh, Hippo, uh, which he wrote, I think, when he was 26, it's, it's an amazing tour de force, came out in 1967. He's got the, the, um, uh, the I think it was the 45th anniversary edition, has the, uh, incorporates the new, more recent uh, sermons that have been found. Anyway, he argues that it would, might sound counterintuitive that the city of God is the most personal of Augustine's works. And you go, what does that mean? But in a real way, Augustine, we would, against the pagans would be mis, we would misinterpret it if we thought, and this is sown throughout the work, uh, Augustine finds a lot in books five, one through five, and books six through 10 that he is drawn to. In some ways, the, the city of God is his own intellectual journey. Uh, he needed the, the great philosophers to free him from a crass understanding of happiness in this life. And so the first five books, he draws on their own historians and, their, and the philosophers to say that the argument that the, the Roman gods provided the Romans with uh, happiness, temporal happiness, is just silly. So then, he goes on and looks through the next five books, and he really has Varro and all these characters he's got great respect for. He's drawn to them. But in the end, the conclusion is uh, the happiness that they thought they could obtain, they weren't really happy. They were bravely unhappy. And it's, it's, it's really remarkable. It's the, the beauty, and if you, it's, if you read the homilies, the sermons that he was giving at the same time, he says something similar. If you love the things in this world, that's understandable. I'm not going to criticize you. They're lovable, but just know what you're loving. They're, they're passing. They're fleeting. So it's uh, the, the, the first 10 books prepare you for his theological vision of the two cities and their history, their emergence, uh, their development in time, and their ultimate uh, outcome. And I, I think it's... Uh, it's so striking that, um, I don't know, I'm gonna do a plug for this. I know scholars don't like the uh, everyman uh, version the, of uh, the modern library, everyman version uh, that Random House published, but it is very handy. And it came out in 1950 and you know, KG Bennett Surf from Random House got Thomas Merton to write the introduction. And Merton basically just says, hey, you know, skip the first 10 books and start with 11. If you're not, because what happens is people who aren't ready to read about all of this pagan history 
get bogged down. And uh, I think I think a lot of people, maybe that should be their first read. Uh, read a few pages into the first book, jump to 11, and then come back and read uh, the first 10. But I, I, uh, it took me a while to be convinced by Peter Brown's argument. And once it's sunk in, I think it's a good way to understand the work because he, he loves these people. We would misunderstand it if we, if we thought Augustine uh, wasn't drawn at some point in his life towards the arguments in, that he refutes in this book. Right, well, that's helpful because sometimes <clears throat> I feel like Augustine can be sort of very harsh on the, on the pagans. Um, as, as someone who is an admirer of the pagan philosophers. But um, I, I want to ask you, Father Michael, to kind of just unpack for us the basic vision of the city of God. That would be the vision um, after book 10. Um, and maybe you could, in unpacking that vision of the two cities, um, maybe just I would invite you to say more about this idea of sacred history as part of that. Oh, wow, that's a big order. I, I, but I think it's the time for me to say something about that, that draws on the title of, of this uh, podcast. I think for Augustine, there are really only two great catastrophes in human history, and the sacking of Rome isn't one of them. The sacking of Rome can help us understand and be the occasion for us to understand the two great catastrophes. But the two great catastrophes are one, the fall, and the other is the crucifixion and death of Christ. And in God's providence, the fall, this terrible disaster, led to the sending of our Savior. So, oh, happy fault, Felix Kupa. In God's providence, this terrible evil that was an abuse of human freedom and led to this disaster uh, can be, in God's providence, the source of salvation. And then the crucifixion, God sends his son out of love for the world and we crucify him, we kill him in a very terrible way. And God uses that as the means to save us from sin and death and lead us in the sending of the spirit to the resurrection and life eternal. So all of this scriptural history is the unfolding of the result, the effects of the fall and the use of the fall in God's providence to start us on a, uh, those who respond to the gift of grace uh, towards uh, another place so that there is the, the pilgrimage city uh, of God uh, begins with sacred history. So if you're going to talk about sacred history, it's the history of the economy of salvation. It's the history of the 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 infinite mercy of God the Father revealed through the action of the word in creation that is animated by the spirit of love. And that starts to unfold through sacred history, prefiguring uh, the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and already getting uh, people, the patriarchs, see their savior from afar. They already begin to participate in uh, as citizens, as hidden citizens of the celestial city uh, because they see their savior from afar abraham on and and the um, although you already have the uh, able the just it goes back that far to able um so yeah it's the unfolding of two ways of loving the things of this world 
uh, in an ordered way and a disordered way, and the two kingdoms that emerge from that. Um, and it's God who sets that uh, love in order in us. Uh, How does virtue relate to this picture of ordered or disordered loves? That's a big question. He, I think he, I think too often we put too much of a distinction between Aquinas and Augustine on this question of virtue. The reason it, uh, Aquinas, is, I mean, the reason Augustine is not willing to accept pagan virtue as virtue is not out of any, that's not, not primarily from his Christian commitments, but it's because the pagans would not understand uh, a later notion of true but imperfect virtue. For for Seneca, he's either he either has the virtue and is perfectly happy, or he doesn't have the virtue. So you, it would be cold comfort to a, a pagan to say, your virtues don't attain for you what you claim, but we'll let you. We'll say that they're imperfect virtues. That, that, that so that would be a non-starter. So the reason he can't have a more generous notion of pagan virtue is not because of his Christian commitment, but because of the pagans' own commitments, their own understanding of virtue. You either have it and are happy, uh, and Seneca is is absolutely remarkable. Seneca is very very close to some forms of Buddhist thought uh, with mm -hmm. regard to it being impassable uh, in, in the events of this life, uh, because that's the really that's the the two options that the pagans have is to just live for the fleeting pleasures of this life, or to live as a way in a way that you're actually there's three. You either live for the fleeting pleasures or you cultivate this kind of stoic virtue where you become impassable or you have the kind of cultivated Horatian sadness where it's almost human in the sense that you, you realize that it's all fleeting, but you cultivate your desires in such a way that uh, you're not a vulgarian, uh, but you're but you're not this kind of stoic refrigerator either uh you 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 live quietly on you tend your farm and uh and for augustine none of that is satisfying because he's too much of a lover uh and he admires lovers even disordered lovers he's got this wonderful passage where in one of his sermons where he he admires the brigands who refuse to reveal their their colleagues while they're being tortured to death. And he says that that's a sign of love that they would be willing to die than betray their friends. He admires that. So he's, he's trying to set a different way and that's the world becomes sacramental. Uh, so pagan virtue and, and this love, uh, unless it's, unless for Augustine, there is no virtue unless it's ordered by love and has as its object, uh, the, an ordered love of God. Right. Ordered to the he kingdom. actually has three different categories of virtue, but you've got to go into book five and book 19 and read through and compare them. Um, that's, that's good. That's, let's let's get back four. to that. What? That's a, that's a good point. Four. So the first one uh, he introduces in book five, which is virtue so-called, and he makes uh, Nero the example of this, where uh, one claims virtue in, a, but it's a kind of buffoonery, mendaciously pursued and through false arts. He uses the term false arts. I mean, virtue 
Nero does not have real virtue, but he claims to have it. So uh, the second kind of virtue is just what he calls virtue according to terrene lights. And it's real virtue. It's not true virtue yet, but it's real virtue. And the primary example is Regulus, right? Who accepts death to satisfy a promise to the Carthaginians rather than uh, uh, think out on his word. He's kind of the Kantian, is, is Regulus. That's we, we should explain that he went back to Rome with a peace offer and he was only allowed to go if he promised to come back to Carthage, whether they accepted it or not, the Romans accepted it or not. And he comes back to Carthage with the words that Rome had rejected the peace offering, which meant that he would be tortured to death. So that's real virtue. And he gives examples from Cato and others. So basically- He uses true virtue though. We've got to get to that. Just get the four of them out there. Whenever he puts true in front of it, it means just what Father Michael said, which is uh, an ordinate relation to, in the virtue of religion, to God. Basically, true cult. One that's connected to true cult. That's true. But true virtue is not perfect. Perfect virtue is the virtue that the saints have in glory, in which the virtue is not in a theater of struggle. It's, it's completed. He, he calls it effortless at that point. So, uh, yeah, there's pagans. Some of these pagans have real virtue, but they're not true. True means according in the order of finality to what we would call later the virtue of religion, including the virtue of religion. And so that's why the Romans merit their empire. But, but Augustine will not go as far as Paulinus and, and see them as exemplar. He, 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 he finally came to see that all of the pagan virtue was corrupted by pride in the end. So he, he doesn't, he admires it. He thinks they merit their empire, but he thinks their, their virtues, even Regulus, all these people, what they're seeking is, is uh, it's the, uh, the cursus honorum. They're seeking glory, but they're seeking a, a, a worldly glory that's corrupted by pride, you think. Father Michael, that seems, I mean, obviously I'm not the Augustine expert uh, in this conversation, but that, but that has to seem right to me just based on the division that he's marking between the earthly city or the terrene city and uh, the heavenly city or the city of God, because those are the the, di the distinction is between two different kinds of love, right? Um, can we talk about that a little bit more? What those two different kinds of love are, and what those two loves are ordered to that are the foundation of these two different cities? Russ, do you want to talk about that? I don't know. Uh, right, by, they're, they're right at the beginning of the city of God. In fact, his most intense lesson on these is in book one, because he compares the conduct both of pagans and Christians under temporal misfortunes. Uh, the simplest way to put it is this. Uh, rightly ordered love uses things of this world 
but enjoys God. Yeah, God that's, the, that's the distinction that he introduces in the De Doctrina Christiana. Yeah, yeah well, it's right in book one, too. It's right in book one, like all get out. One of the problems with the weak Christians and why he says Job is the Old Testament exemplar for married people is because Job learned, it's taught by God, he learned that God is to be enjoyed and is never to be used simply as a means for temporal benefits. So God is to be enjoyed, uh, things of this earth are to be used. Whereas confused religion or false religion wants to use God and enjoy things of this world. Right. And so in uh, chapter nine of book one, where he complains about the Christians in Rome who were grumbling about the sack, saying they apparently really thought that Jesus Christ came to save us so that we could keep money in the bank and we could keep crops and so on and so forth. That's no better than the pagan in one sense of the term. That, that uh, the reign of Christ is simply to be used and is to be cashed out in terms of temporal rewards. And so the, the two figures of book one for love that he wants to compare is Regulus, the Roman, who at least loved the uprightness of his virtue and his promise and would invoke the gods only to help him do it. So the gods are to be used there. And uh, Job, who was willing to lose everything, lest he violate the order of love. Uh, things to be used can be taken away. But we should, Augustine, you know, not God. God is not to be used. He's only to be enjoyed. It's uh, we're at the edge of of uh, Augustine's vocabulary here. One of the sorrows is we do not have. Augustine's Latin translation, or I should say the Latin translation of Plotinus that Augustine was using. So we don't directly have the Neoplatonist Latin vocabulary that was influencing him. But you know, towards the end of his life, he talks about anyone who reads my work will see that I worked out my ideas by writing them and that over time my ideas evolved. And he, he, it's, I agree with Oliver O'Donovan that he's not entirely satisfied with the use of the Greek, of the Latin word uti, the deponent verb to, to use. But even in, even though in Latin, in Latin, it was a kind of verb that you could use for kind of business relationships, business friendships and things. It wasn't as utilitarian as it sounds in English, but even that, he wasn't entirely happy with it. But the gist is still that we should love, uh, all created things are signs of God's goodness. And so we should love them as such. Uh, and again, in his homilies, you really, the sermons really point out the way he tries to convey this to those who have not had a Neoplatonic training. He says, you know, you, you love, no one wants to die. You all love your bodies. You all, you all love life, uh, but it, we all are going to die. So 
and we would all prefer not to die and, and be resurrected without death. But uh, so it's not wrong to love earthly life, but we have to learn to love it rightly. And he struggles all his life to characterize in good Latin what it means to love temporal things temporally and what it means to love eternal things eternally and to find our joy in God's glory, in God's goodness, uh, and to live for that. Because that's the one thing that is eternal and uh, won't fail us uh, and makes us blessed by uh, loving it for itself, loving that reality, loving God for himself. And the, the propter deum, propter ipsum, is really tough. He's at the, he's at the very edge of of uh, language. He's trying to say something that he's not sure how to say, but it's very much, uh, and, and this is going to be drawn into the monastic tradition. It's going to be taken up again by early scholasticism, the distinction between uh, things you should enjoy, things you should use, things that are essential, things that are real, the res, and things that are signs and that are passing away. Uh, and to live at the reality of our status as pilgrims, as viatores, as peregrinas, peregrinos. So I want to get back to the thing about pilgrims, but but just in case we don't have time, I, re I really want to come back to this question of providence and evil and suffering. So it's really good to know, as Russ pointed out, that um, St. Augustine would completely reject this kind of prosperity gospel, uh, which is so popular, especially in the United States right now. Um, the idea that if you're faithful to God, you know, the reward is, is going to be money and, and material things, the things that you want. Um, but I think, and, and everyone's kind of fine with providence while things are going well, um, but when the rubber really hits the road is when things are falling apart, um, when you're suffering, when there's a kind of catastrophe or a calamity, and that's precisely when you start to question whether or not there is a providential order. It's when you start asking, hey, if God's so great and he's so smart and he's so wise and he's so just, um, why is there all of this murder and catastrophe and plague? Um, so can we talk a little bit more about how Augustine is addressing this in his context of catastrophe? Russ, I'm going to ask that one to you first. You could say that um, well, book five opens with this question. How could something as important temporally important as the Roman Empire stand outside the order of divine providence. That's how it begins. The rise and fall of human kingdoms within the order of divine providence. And he argues, yes, takes him several chapters, but he argues, yes. Then the next question is this, does any creature have a right in justice and in truth that God include temporal rewards for good conduct. And he argues, no, no, that no human being is sufficiently perfect in virtue 
as to be able to demand in truth and in justice that God affix temporal benefits to whatever good is there. That opens the field now for Augustine to make this argument. Uh, God can give kingdoms to the just and the unjust alike because he's not under a claim in truth or justice to rewards except as he sees fit. And that's the middle of book five. He has a different argument going on now. And he says, uh, we don't know exactly why God gave temporal advantages to the Romans, who certainly did not have perfect or even true virtues. And these are hidden things that we cannot completely understand pollucidly. Right? But God can give rewards and punishments and training to whomever he pleases. And so that a sack can be within the order of divine providence because there are people who are being trained by God to learn to love rightly, to, le to love temporal things rightly, and to love eternal things rightly. So that, uh, by the way, I think this business of divine providence and kingdoms is the first shots of the Pelagian controversy. Can you say why you think that and what well, the Pelagian controversy is for our audience? Well, the Pelagian controversy that uh, a human being can, uh, without grace, not sin. And, and Augustine, of course, tears after this position. But look, it's the first opening round of the Pelagian controversy because there are those who want to claim that God owes them temporal benefits. And it, it's, it, it's an, in the strict order of justice, he owes temporal benefits. Uh, hey, listen, I did the right thing. I, I want 100 airline miles or something, right? Uh, I deserve this because of my rectitude, whatever. He says, no, the giving of temporal rewards after sin is God's judgment, and he will give them to the just and the unjust alike for his own purposes. And what is sometimes regarded as a temporal punishment or a correction is actually a profound uh, generosity on the part of God of training his people to receive the kingdom. It's actually a great benefit. We just don't see it correctly. But for Augustine, how people are called, and even kingdoms who don't have true religion are called, is obscure. But one thing for sure, no one in justice can claim it. Right. So I think, okay, so there's the point about, okay, the wicked might flourish, temporally speaking. Um, but the flip side of that, it, and I think, you know, people might be able to accept that, okay, fine. But I think um, where I see, and somewhat feel myself, a, a lot of resistance is when innocent people suffer tremendous evils. So if you think of um, in the Brothers K, right, where Dostoevsky sets up this scenario where we have the innocent child who's ripped apart by dogs in front of his parents, 
And Ivan Karamazov uses this as the pretext to say, I'm not going to affirm that world. I return my ticket. This is not a world that I'm going to love and affirm, and I'm certainly not going to love and affirm and obey the architect of such a world. Um, and there's a there's really a parallel scene in Camus' The Plague, right, between Rio and Father Panelou, um, who gives a, a, <laughs> a kind of Augustinian sermon um, about providence. I think Father Panelou does a bad job, but um, and and Rio says, you know, no, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not going to love this world. So I think that people have a harder time um, thinking about tremendous evils that befall people who seem innocent. Like how can a good and loving God allow this? So I wonder what Augustine has to say about that, if he has anything to say about that in the city of God. I, well, I, I, I think the first, I we should underline how important this question is. It is, in my estimation, the great question in Western and especially English language, but Western language, Western literature, since I think if we just look at English literature, it, it's after the English Civil War, I mean, the, the reactions to it, but it, variations on a theme, 20th century, how can you believe in God after the uh, First World War? How can you believe in God after Auschwitz? You, you go down all the variations on a theme and so much of, uh, if you look at Hemingway, you look at Steinbeck, you look at other, so many authors are, or if you look at Elie Wiesel's Night, uh, you, you have this question and it, it haunts uh, our contemporaries. And I think most, the whole movement of the kind of militant atheists, uh, they, are, um, uh, they are inspired by this, uh, this problem. Uh, so it's a huge problem. And I think one of the things that led so many people to wander away from the childhood faith they were raised in is the soft peddling of something that I think became more and more central to Augustine, which is our configuration to Christ and how Christ is the response to innocent suffering. Uh, the, it, the suffering of the innocent poses a question that can't be answered outside of the mystery of Christ, period. And that's hard. Uh, and yet it's also where the, the infinite, infinitely merciful visage of the father is revealed. Uh, the, our love, you know, a father's love for a child that dies through some terrible means uh, doesn't, doesn't mourn alone. There's another father who suffers through the humanity of Christ in that event. So it, without, apart from the mystery of Christ, it, there is not a, a, an adequate response. And even that response takes you into mystery. Uh, but Augustine's very, very clear that the path uh, of the city the path to the city is the, is the cross of Christ. And it's also, we, I, I mean, I, I, since I come from several hundred years of, of Puritan stock, I feel I can, I can say this. One of the tragedies of the reform was setting aside the deuterocanonical books because the deuterocanonical books, for many different reasons, it was a tragedy to set them aside, but it's, they contain Israel's meditation on this problem. The Jews were beginning to suffer 
not because of their infidelity to the law, but because of their fidelity to the law. And so many of the texts that Augustine uses to explain the pedagogical nature that, uh, of what happens, he's drawing on the Book of Wisdom, he's drawing on texts that are, are deuterocanonical because they emerge in the scriptures at the time when the Jews are having to confront this. Right. Uh, uh, Rex, did you want to get in on this really fast? Sorry. I wasn't sure if you were trying to interject, but well, let me just, just because we're running out of time and I'm going to have to switch to audience Q&A, but I do want to return to this question of Augustine's conception of as a pilgrim or a wayfarer. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I want to pose this question in the particular context of our current state of unrest. Um, how does Augustine's view of us as pilgrims, you know, homo viator, how, how does that help us deal with catastrophe, like here and now? Russ, I'm going to ask you this. Well, of course, the idea of being a pilgrim is a theological concept. Um, the, uh, well, actually, the prodigal and the pilgrim, I mean, the Confessions is structured around the twofold movement of the prodigal leaving home and getting wasted, uh, uh, and the pilgrim coming back. But that's a, that's a scriptural motif. Augustine uses it all of the time. Um, whereas Camus, for example, doesn't talk about pilgrim prodigal because if he did, he'd be right in Augustine's bailiwick if he did. But he speaks of exile. Now, I will admit that exile has some sense of a scriptural motif as well. But Camus means by exile, we don't feel at home. We just don't feel at home. And the uh, terrible thing about the catastrophe like a plague, but also the benefit of it is we get clear that we're exilic in some way or another. We're never going home. And see, that's Augustinian. Augustine thinks that's everyone's experience, that Camus is articulating everyone's experience. Yeah, but I'm not sure Camus would, would, would agree with that characterization. Well, Camus, Camus wrote his doctoral dissertation on Augustine. Just want to remind everyone. Right. Um, right. I, I think that he is, well, my own reading of the play is that he's wrestling um, with, with some of this inheritance from his uh, pretty spectacular French education. See, pilgrims and prodigals need a story. Yeah. And Augustine's a master at supplying that story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas when Camus talks about the feeling as though one's in exile, or sometimes he will say in prison. In right. Prison, <laughs> yep. Uh, that... Uh, He's very clear in the plague, and there is no story. Right. I mean, there's an epidemiological story, and there's all kinds of little human stories about someone missing their wife or, you know, so on and so forth, but there is no story. And Camus is resolved not to supply that story. I mean, and the best book on that is The Myth of Sisyphus. Right. 
Yeah, totally. Andrew Sisyphus, he doesn't try to deal with his dilemma by having a story, right? Right, because he doesn't think there is one. And this is part of, for Camus, I mean, that, That's the contemporary dilemma. Is there a story or not? Right. And in order to hear the story, you have to be receptive to hearing it. And I think in the context of whether it's the sack of Rome or whether it's any suffering in our lives, it can pedagogically, from Augustine's perspective, be an occasion for us to step back and maybe listen that there is someone who wishes to speak to us uh, through the mystery of suffering, uh, that you're not alone. There's someone suffering with you and that the suffering can have a redemptive quality. And that's, everyone has to do that you know, and confront that, and uh, and it, it, it grace ultimately. You know, Augustine wasn't able to change his life without an action of God, who wants to share that story. Uh, for me, someone who remains very contemporary is Solzhenitsyn on all of this, because Solzhenitsyn discovered that finding peace, finding truth, didn't mean he was going to survive the Gulag. And some of the people that he most admired in the Gulag, who really had found peace, they didn't. So the discovery, his conversion experience on a, while well, he's sick on a bed of dirty straw, that the, the distinction between good and evil goes through the heart of each of us, he, and the, the way in which uh, he was called to live after that and to, to be faithful to the truth about God and his, and his neighbor and himself, uh, didn't mean he was going to succeed, right. but it meant that he'd be okay, that he would, he'd finally be at peace. Um, right. I think that's a good point. Okay, we have so many excellent questions from the audience, so I'm going to turn to these. Um, the first one is from Matthew, um, who asks, how do you see the city of God illuminating the current debate about liberalism and integralism between Catholics. So I take this to be a question about Augustine's political theology and uh, political authority. So Russ, why don't you take that one? I, don't, I, I wanna save Russ by giving Augustine quote, then I'll let Russ go in. This is, this is book five, paragraph 17. And I prepared this for Russ. Oh, excellent. For as far as this life of mortals is concerned, which is spent and ended in a few days, what does it matter under whose government a dying man lives if they who govern do not force him to impiety and iniquity? So for Augustine, it's much more important that we make sure that we're living as cities, as citizens of the city of God, and that whatever regime we're under uh, allows us the freedom to not be impious or immoral. And besides that, in the end of the day, uh, Augustine doesn't have a lot of great hope for great constructions. Uh, Good. Do you have anything to add to that, Russ? Well, quite a bit, but it would require probably a lecture. Um, Shortened version. Uh, first of all, political order is 
a good for Augusta. At least abstractly, it's a good, right? It, it goes along with marriage, these are natural goods. The tranquility of order uh, in a civic association and in marriage and family are goods. But it's very interesting when he gets to book five, because the two political discussions are five and 19. And he gets to five and he says, uh, well, what difference does it make that we've had emperors now who are Christian, right? Theodosius, Justinian, so Constantine, so forth. And his response is very interesting, that uh, they have two qualities, Christian qualities that make them stand out. Uh, first of all, they understand mercy, when mercy is necessary in things, human affairs. Uh, they have some curb over their libido dominandi to subject people. Let's call it a humility. But the, the, uh, the predicate he uses all the time, including into book 19 is, they confess their sins. So go back to book five and see what's the best thing he can be said, that can be said of Constantine, Justinian or Theodosius, and it's Theodosius that he singles out. When he goofed up, he got on his knees and confessed his sins. And when you get to book 19, he says, and even now for us Christians, our justice consists solely in confession and the remission of sins. So this is how you pick out the Christian difference is humility and confession of sin. Uh, something that Marcus Aurelius didn't do or Nero or the others. Can this have good effects on a body politic? Certainly, certainly, I mean, that, they can have good effects, but the best effect of Theodosius's confession of sin is what happens to Theodosius. The best effect is that he remains a Christian and does not substitute uh, uh, his humble following of Christ, doesn't cash it in for the glory of the imperial office. That's how you know the Christian. The Christian can govern, the non-Christian can govern. But the Christian difference is confession of sin. And this is why the political heroes, if we're going to call them political heroes of the city of God are all examples of humility. Theodosius, Hannah, who prophesies the coming of the kingdom of sparing the humble and speaking to the humble. That's Augustine's point of view on this. I mean, would uh, good Christian leadership in all humility and recognition of our own sinfulness make the earthly city a happy place? I think the answer is no. But it would make it a morally better place and it, it, it wouldn't corrupt the souls of those Christians who have to govern, who have to govern. Mm -hmm. That's the 25 cent answer, not the $5 answer. 
Excellent. Do you want to add an extra two cents, Father Michael, or should we move on? I would just say that for most of Christian history, Augustine's vision and the way it was applied was much more according to the principle of subsidiarity than often gets remembered. Uh, I personally think that one of the great tragedies is that the Catholic cause uh, became associated with the absolutism of the either the Capetian and Bourbon uh, monarchies in France or uh, on the Stuart side of the Civil War in in Britain, the I think the the the, the Puritans maintained vestiges of the medieval polity. If you read Father Augustine Thompson's Cities of God, uh, a study of the Italian city-states, you'll see that the model was Christ was the king of these city-states and the elected officials of these little republics uh, and you, you were, were his vicars. So the democracies, the one way of viewing the Italian city-states before the despots took them over was that they were the flowering of a medieval Augustinian, uh, Neo-Augustinian, however you want to look at it, Aristotelian Augustinian uh, vision of the polity where Christ is the king. And it's the, it's the destruction of that that leads us into the despotisms of the, of the Renaissance. Uh, so it's not Whig history that sees these democracies as the beginning of the modern era. It's the flowering of the medieval era. And so, yeah, I, I would be, uh, I think he wants to, on every level of the polity, to have ordered love. Yeah. Okay. By the way, Augustine was not an empire guy. He understands the empire. He understands what makes it tick. He really does. But you have to read around to find them. But he identifies the church as the true republic. And in his critique of the uh, Roman civil wars and atrocities of Roman history, he always says, that was not the Republic. At the, in the times of the Republic, they were pretty well ordered. They believed in uh, 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 public benefit and wealth and private order. They were well-ordered and that in republics, it's a smaller order. And therefore, uh, a republic has certain built-in inhibitions on the imperial libido dominandi. Now, you, you have to look around, but uh, Augustine is a republic guy. A republic, everything he learned from ancient Roman history is that they really went wrong when they cashed in the Republic for Imperial. Right. And uh, it's interesting because in the earlier Middle Ages, Augustine was an, identified with an empire guy because Charlemagne read the city of God and there was a Holy Roman Empire. But the real Augustine was a Republic guy. Did, did Augustine lament the fact that re, the Roman Republic ceased to be Yes, but he didn't lose any sleep over it either. I mean, because God gives an empire, it benefits both the just and the unjust, you know, deal with it. But he was a Republican guy. 
Okay. He even identifies at the beginning of the city of God, the church as the true republic, not the true empire. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, good. I, I want to move on because there's, um, and this is switching gears a bit, but I, but I think in a way that's good. So this is a question from Catherine, um, and I'll just read the question. Can you discuss more directly the way that those in the two different cities cope with tragedy? What is the role of love for each and how does the difference in their loves impact their coping with tragedy? How significant and in what way is the story, right? The story, whether or not we can believe it for these two types of citizens. Hmm. The question is specifically about tragedy, so I like it. Hmm. Um... The caring city is marked by this. In grief, in the grief of Cain, as Cain is the human founder of the Tarian city. In grief, we try to build a nest for ourselves and do the best we can. We don't ask for anything more. We're looking down. In grief, you can tell any lie to make life habitable and agreeable enough so that you can continue on. That's the tendency of the Tarian city, is to no longer desiring God or something higher. In one's grief, you do the best you can. That is, you manage it. You manage it as best as possible. And Augustine believes that human uh, communities after the fall are built up around griefs. And um, long story about that, but the best treatment of grief being at the heart of uh, the Tarian city is book four of the confessions when he loses his best friend his other self in yeah. his meditation on grief and love and why he found himself entering ever more deeply into the vast myth and the noble lie of this world the vast myth and the noble lie of this world is we can make it all kind of go away by managing it and distracting ourselves. So book the confessions is the place to head for. Yeah, I think there's a, uh, I think Russ has put his finger on something that also is very contemporary and that is the uh, disordered love also leads to blindness and living the lie. Again, Solzhenitsyn, right? It was, and then of course the, the dissidents from Central Europe, Baklav, Havel, all those characters take up the idea that the only way for them to find freedom in this tragicomic world is to refuse to live the lie. Um, but I'll come back. I think the, the the pagans that Augustine admires are the ones who take the Horatian response, or maybe even the uh, Seneca's response. But I think he's more drawn to kind of the Horatian kind of you just kind of tend your garden and you just try not to pay too much attention to the, uh, to the tragic situation you find yourself into, to the catastrophe that's befallen you. You try to limit uh, and, and have a more focused, uh, just tend your garden uh, and uh, and try to, you know, enjoy a good Bordeaux or whatever. Uh, that's, the, that's the best the pagans can do, I think, Augustine thinks. And they end in suicide. 
That's right. That's the other. He's got these very interesting observations about suicide. And, uh, but he thinks that uh, many of the best of them won't do that because they still love some, there is still something lovable that they can cherish about life. But yes, if, for those who no longer find any of that, the pagan will then turn to suicide. Uh, the, the Christian response, there's two levels to it. There's the response that he gives about the educational role of this to help people re realize that this is true for everything in life. Everything in, that we have will eventually be taken from us, but we're made for eternity. And so all of those, the, the masterpiece of book 22 is the celebration of the life that awaits us. Uh, but the other thing he's going to say, and I, I brought this out because this was something that was drawn upon by Cardinal Ratzinger uh, when, right after becoming Pope. And he writes that amazing encyclical, uh, Deus Caritas Est. But the, uh, Ratzinger talks about the, the sacramental mysticism of Augustine. And he's trying to, he wrote a, uh, we don't know exactly to which martyrs, but he has, there's a brief homily sermon that he gave uh, to the martyrs, uh, sermon 329, uh, around the time of the, of the sacking of Rome where he says, pay attention to the, to the table we set here at this liturgy, because sooner or later you will be called upon to set the same table. So the response to catastrophe is to prepare us to the fact that we are going to be configured to the cross of Christ, whether we want it or not. And therefore we're nourished in the Eucharist to prepare us for it. But it's, it doesn't lead to our destruction. It leads to our salvation and the salvation of those we love. Uh, so the, we can live illusion and live as if this isn't, as if death isn't a reality, or we can live the reality and know we've been saved through the cross for the joys of resurrected life. There's no other option. It's either illusion or integration into the infinite mercy of God revealed through the mystery of the cross. And of course, Ratzinger was saying, that, hey, Europe, pay attention to that because that's in your future. Okay, um, I have a question here from Sarah and it's about Augustine on Vero and Roman civil religion. Um, mm. And she's asking about the insights we can take from this for thinking through the life of the heavenly city while on earth, especially in the case of discord between civil norms slash religion and the heavenly city she says she's thinking of book 19, chapter 17 in particular. Yes, book 19, 17, very interesting. In fact, I had it open. Me too. And he, Excellent. It's in 17, he's talking about the human society in, in time before the end, before the final judgment, being a corpus uh, paramixtum, mixed together, commingled, right? And the, the pilgrims, the saints, and the reprobate enjoy many, many of the same temporal advantages, and they suffer many of the same setbacks that everyone would suffer, whether it's drought or famine or whatever. He says, and in these things, the, the saint and the reprobate are making use of whatever tranquility of order 
had, is in place, right? He says, but there's one thing that we cannot agree on. And I, I read it. But the heavenly city knows only one God who is to be worshiped and it decrees with faithful piety that to him alone must be given that service which the Greeks called Latria and which is due only to God. And because of this difference, it has not been possible for the heavenly city to have laws of religion in common with the earthly city. Rather, it has been necessary for her to dissent from the earthly city in this regard and to become a burden to those who think differently. So we can have laws regarding municipal water systems. We can have laws regarding even education. We can have laws about all sorts of things and we can share, but we can't share laws of religion. And you know, that is, of course, what that would mean in many cases would have to be thought through because we can't share laws of religion. How can we share all laws of matrimony? For example, the issue would come right up because matrimony in most of human society is also a religious law of some sort, you see. But I do think he means just what he says here. Uh, on laws of religion, by which he means giving praise to God, latria to God, divine service. There's not going to be a corpus paramixtum. It simply cannot be. And on this one, we should be as separated from others as the good and the bad angels are separated. Because they're separated over the issue of latria too, and separated absolutely. This has been a, a live issue in um, British society ever since uh, the, the, the difficulties of secularizing the, the, the Oxbridge, right? Mm -hmm. the, the post that used to be held only by a member of the clergy and the civil religion uh, of the universities. Uh, and so you have the generation, the interwar generation of people like uh, uh, Hugh Trevor Roper, who uh, he was very clear. He he was basically a kind of uh, trying to live a noble pagan life, but he would he would read at at uh, uh, choral office. He would attend the services. He he had a post uh, at uh, at the house you know, at Christ Church, uh, and he would conform to the religious observance uh, of the Anglican ceremonies. But he didn't believe in revelation, and, but he felt it was important to give, uh, to participate in the state ritual. And I know, I won't name any, uh, but I know some uh, august uh, writers, conservative writers, who, who make common cause with Catholic writers, who basically do something similar. They, they're not, Christian believers, but they will participate in Anglican ceremonies because they believe it's the state religion and that that citizens have a, a duty to offer cult to God. So their kind of paganism is a is a is a monotheistic paganism. But the kind of questions that that raises has to do with, in the end, what's really going on and. 
I think Russ put his finger on it with regard to marriage. Um, we've attempted to secularize marriage, but what we were really doing was we've had marriage where the state, the notion of secularity was created by uh, uh, committed Protestants in order to have peace with uh, among the different Protestant groups. Now, can pagans participate because they support enough of this, they see enough of their own natural ideas on marriage in it to support it. We've been able to do that for a long time, but it, it's a serious question as whether we can, how much longer we can do that. You know, in California, the, the Catholic priest or the Protestant minister is the agent of the, of the state in the ceremony of marriage. There's uh, one it, thing. It, 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 how much longer? Maybe you, you will agree with me on this, Father Michael. There's one thing we know that Augustine would not countenance, which is to affirm laws of religion simply so God can become our servant and provide temporal benefits. Yeah. And that cuts both ways. So let me give you a scenario. At the beginning of the city of God, he's dealing with the old pagan aristocrats who say, we are losing an entire way of life that worked for almost 2,000 years because you've put alien gods that aren't our civic gods in the forum. Now, move the real ahead 2,000 years. It's us now. And we say, but we used to have a culture that was 90% Christian. And we had a culture that saw the proper relationship between the divine cult, giving lottery to God in marriage. We had uh, many, many benefits. And now this has been taken from us. This has been taken from us. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that Augustine, because he's always the moral psychologist, whatever else Augustine is, he's the moral psychologist. He would say, and does that make you very sad? And he say, yes. He says, well, I can interpret your sadness. You are sad because you love the temporal benefits too much. Let's start there. In other words, I think the argument against the aristocratic pagans at the beginning could be made in the condition post-Christendom. Right? If you're just making arguments for a divine cult for the sake of the temporal advantages, you are making the really big mistake in religion that Augustine highlights throughout the entire book. I think that's been a, that's been a big temptation uh, among the English-speaking peoples for a very, very long time. And the arguments that uh, we support uh, Christian education because it keeps the masses uh, doing, you know, morally good things and, and it supports the peace of the social order. Uh, that, in the end, I think it leads to generations that no longer believe in revealed religion. It's, uh, it's making uh, uh, religion is useful for the peace of the state. Uh, but at the same time, on the, looking at the other side of it, I think Augustine would have a certain sympathy for arrangements that help Christians 
want to live as good citizens of the city of, of God. So it's, uh, it all be, you know, what is animating the desire to institute a workable uh, arrangements for marriage and sustain that is the goal to prepare people to know and love God and be with him for all eternity, or is the goal some type of temporal success? And there's always going to be a tension there. And I think Augustine himself recognizes there's that tension. How much do you participate in the seculum? Okay, so this is great. Thank you so much uh, to both of you. I am going to have to hand things back to Michael in a second, but just as a way of kind of tying everything up in a bow, um, there are a lot of questions from the audience that are just asking about uh, resources, um, especially for people who are maybe reading the City of God for the first time or coming back to it after many years away from it. Um, so just as a, as a final thought, maybe you could give us uh, really quickly just kind of your best recommendations um, for a secondary reading for people who are. You want to start, Russ? Yeah. Read book one. Don't follow Thomas Merton's advice on this because it's, it's all there in Nucleo in book one and it's beautifully written. It gives all kinds of examples for his concepts. Uh, and, you know, compares Cato and Job. Uh, he gets right down to business in the criticism of those who do not understand uh, uh, rightly ordered religion. So you've got to at least read book one. Thereafter, I recommend Gerardo Daly's Augustine City of God, a Reader's Guide. Is that Oxford? I can't really see yeah, it. It's, it's Oxford and it's really not bad at all. And uh, he summarizes every book. He gives a pretty good picture of how you're getting from one to another. And uh, he's good on dates and explaining who people are because one of the big problems readers have today is that they may know who Job is kind of, but they don't know who Regulus is or Cato. And they don't know Roman religious mythology. And so a lot of the, they, they don't know who Jupiter is. And uh, O'Daly helps with that. Excellent. For the, for the book, I, would, I agree with 100% with Russ in terms of the book itself. I, we were talking about narrative. We've come out of a time uh, in history where uh, narrative histories were poo-pooed and biographies were poo-pooed and we've been able uh, perhaps because of Shelby Foote's uh, narrative history of the Civil War, who knows, but we, uh, we are spoiled by having a lot of very good narrative biographies of Roman figures. And the first one, even though it's dated and even, it's, uh, even though it's from the sociological school of reading the fathers, I would begin, if you haven't read Peter Brown's Augustine of Hippo, I would read it. Then in terms of the best, there are a lot of other biographies out there now, and everyone has their own taste. But I think Serge Lancel from the French side of things is really, it's a very fine English translation, and it's a good complement between the two. But to get back to Russ's point, there's a lot, there are very fine uh, biographies of Roman figures that are now out there. Far better than reading history books, I think, is to read these biographies, because then you get a sense of who is Cato, uh, who is Augustus, 
and who what was going on around so the the different uh, roman figures you can a good window into them is there are some very good biographies of julius caesar of caesar augustus of all these characters who are presupposed in what augustine's writing about and by the way this very week a new biography of alaric oh yeah i saw that on npr yeah yeah do you remember the author because i can't i was thinking about that this morning no, I, I read a review of it somewhere, but it sounds interesting enough. Yeah, no, there's a really great interview with him on NPR. Um, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Frey. And we should we could do the same thing on uh, the last Roman, uh, Boethius. Ah, he yes. Would make a very good read for our times. Yeah, uh, especially I, because I of the that. influence he had on later generations. Well, you'll just have to come on Sacred and Profane Love. And ah. <laughs> well, thank you to um, to Jen, to Russ, and to Father Michael um, for helping break open Augustine City of God and helping us to better think about living as Christians in a time in times of catastrophe. Um, I think, especially against the backdrop of the two true catastrophes um, that Father Michael pointed out in his remarks. Um, and thank you all for joining. I was especially excited to see some of our alumni from our summer seminars coming on. Um, Augustine is just rich enough that you have to keep coming back. Um, and this event is recorded and it will be available on our website and on YouTube. So if you want to come back to review any of it, feel free to do so. Um, I want to thank our co-sponsors for today's event um, who helped spread word about it. America Media, the Collegium Institute, the St. Benedict Institute, the Beatrice Institute, the Nova Forum, the Harvard Catholic Center, and the Institute of Faith for Culture. And finally, of course, uh, the Sacred and Profane Love podcast found anywhere you can listen to podcasts today. Um, if you, I hope that's true, Jen. Otherwise, if there's a preferred platform, feel free to let us know. Um, Honestly, I don't know. I'm not very <laughs> um, But if you out there, uh, viewers and listeners, want to support our work to make the Christian intellectual tradition available widely at the university and within our culture, you can donate today at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. And I invite each of you back to join us next Tuesday for our new series on reason and beauty in Renaissance and uh, Renaissance Christian thought and culture, starting with a web conversation on Dante as poet and philosopher. Um, otherwise, join me once again in thanking our speakers. Um, and, and thank you, Jen, for moderating a fantastic conversation. And I look forward to when we can welcome you back, particularly back to the University of Chicago campus or back next summer to Berkeley for our one-week seminar on Augustine City of God for doctoral students. Thank you again. Very awesome. Thanks. Bye, guys. Thanks, Jen.